Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle East Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Joshua Donovan, and I'm a host on the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Stacey Farenthold, uh, who is an assistant professor of history at the University of California, Davis, uh, focusing on Middle East history and history of global migrations. Uh, Dr. Farenthold got her PhD in Northeastern University in history. Uh, But today we'll be focusing on her new book, uh, Between the Ottomans and the Entente, The First World War in the Syrian and Lebanese Diaspora, 1908 to 1925, uh, which was just published this year by Oxford University Press. Thank you so much for being here on the show with us today, Dr. Farenthold. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. So, uh, Professor Farenthold, could you start just by introducing yourself to our listeners a little bit and giving us a sense of how you came to to study this topic? So, I came to this topic as a first as a dissertation project. I was um, putting together a dissertation project on uh, Syrian and Lebanese history in the years 2010, 2011, 2012. And those were, that was a historical moment when we have the beginning of the Arab uprisings and then the beginnings of a mass migration uh, out from Syria, out from the conflicts that started there. Um, and I'd always been sort of interested in people who get left out of uh, traditional historical narratives. Um, and I had this sort of working thesis that, so, that people get selected out of history or they get written out of history because their stories don't necessarily conform to the um, archival uh, infrastructure that, um, that the nation state builds to create a story about itself. So I knew that I wanted to write a history of people, um, and I knew I wanted to write a history of people on the move, um, but writing my dissertation in that period... Um, also meant that I had to get a little creative about the archives that I would use to, uh, to document the history of people mm-hmm. on the move. So the dissertation and then the book that came out of it, are, it's sort of a study of, um, you know, Arabic-speaking migrants from the late Ottoman Empire who have been sort of absent from the histories of the states that emerged in their homeland after World War I. And in addition to telling this sort of social history from a bottom-up perspective, I wanted to really sort of think about and get my readers to think about the ways that um, archives systematically write migrants, nomads, refugees out of history because these people don't necessarily conform to a place-based historical narrative. So you actually anticipated my first question, which was one on methodology, because um, as as you talk about, you you are really interested in pulling people out of the margins and into history. But you know, when you're doing this, really just in general, I, I think it can be sort of difficult. When you're doing this in the Middle East, uh, it can arguably even be even harder, just because of the difficult archival terrain that you sort of alluded to. Um, you have an excellent quote at the the end of your book, which I want to share with the readers and then uh, just sort of get your thoughts on on how you went about doing this. But you say, uh, by reclaiming them, meaning these diaspora communities, from the margins through the papers they carried, we are served with a powerful reminder. Migrants were not and are not merely at the margins of other people's histories. They are at the center of their very own. Um, so, you know, of course, we'll talk about each of the, the chapters here in, in a bit more detail, but can you tell us about some of some of the papers that they carried uh, that you were able to look at and how you were able to to pull uh, these these people out of the margins, so to speak, uh, and tell their story? Sure. Um, first, you know, I'll just um, say that um, some of this, you know, finding these alternative uh, sources, finding these 
um, these documents that migrants carried really became necessary when one, well, when I was starting a dissertation project in 2011, right? So it was because I did, I, I could not get access to some of the uh, official archives is specifically in Syria that I had to get creative about how, about what I considered to be um, a historical source and where I could find sources for Syrian history. So I really began with the um, Syrian and Lebanese American uh, newspaper press. There was this incredibly loquacious, incredibly um, uh, well, colorful and very well documented um, Arab American press during the period of World War One, centered in New York uh, and São Paulo and Buenos Aires, and and I really I started there. I wanted to hear the stories that these that these uh, journalists were writing to one another and about one another. And from that press, um, I picked up, you know, stories about quarantine, stories about um, immigration inspection, stories about naturalization efforts or failures at naturalization, which gave me hints for other sorts of documents that I could look at. So for the book, I use passports, I use naturalization papers, I use census records. Um, and those are sort of, you know, the formal archives that I use. And then I also use family papers, uh, personal correspondence between individuals, diaries, um, prose writing, and then of course the uh, as much of this Arab American press that I could get for that period, 1908 19 to 1925. Excellent. So um, to, to just give give our listeners a, a broad overview of, of the, the major contributions to scholarship, at least as, as I saw it, um, I, I see your book sort of sitting at the nexus of, of at least two uh, scholarly conversations that have become really in vogue, I think, in the past few years. Um, one being uh, on the 100-year the anniversary on, um, on World War I in the Middle East. There have been a lot of really great social histories that have talked about uh, the, the home front, have talked about famine, and have talked about the birth of the mandate. Um, and on the other hand, there's also been a, a resurgence of uh, really excellent scholarship on uh, diaspora and of migration to and from the Middle East. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious, what, what is gained um, by putting the diaspora and the homeland together in the way that you do in this book? Oh, that's a great question, um, and I, I do feel like I do feel extremely lucky that um, I get to be doing this work at this particular historical moment um, with these two particular fields, um, which I argue, um, you know, really need one another. Um, first, uh, the argument that I make that that I advance in the book is that these are two uh, distinct historiographies that sort of speak that sort of stand back to back for no good reason. Um, well, there is a good reason, and the good reason is archival. Um, for instance, that uh, histories of the First World War, I mean, Ottomanists have been doing amazing work, um, sort of unpacking the social history of the First World War and striking striking out on the path that the Ottoman Empire was not only central to the war, but that, you know, central to the story of this uh, global war, but that the home front and that places beyond the battlefield matter. So the Ottomanist historiography is really inspiring in, in the way that it's, um, the way that it's um, telling a deeper story about the First World War. Um, but in that historiography, there's been a lot of focus on um, taking apart the state and thinking about the relationship between the state and the society that it governs. Um, but despite how closely connected the conflict of the First World War is with the experience of refugeeism and migration, um, the conversation within Ottoman studies has been limited roughly to the, to the boundaries of the Ottoman Empire. And so that's one way that I think diaspora studies can contribute to this historiography of the First World War. Similarly, and for, also for archival reasons, um, the migration... Migration in the Middle East has been a research field that's been sort of emerging for the past 10 years, um, but it's a historiography that I argue has two different stories that it's telling. It has the pre-1914 story, which is about the emergence of the Syrian, Lebanese, and Palestinian diasporas in the Americas from the late 19th century until 1914. 
Um, and then there's a story that's post-1920, which is really about this diaspora's relationship to the French mandate. Um, the pre-1914 people tend to rely on the Arab American press, um, as do I, uh, as well as Ottoman records. And then the folks that are writing post-1920 tend to use French mandatory records or permanent mandate commission records or League of Nations records. Um, so that creates a, a potent silence during the war years. Um, and it means that the people studying the early diaspora are asking different questions from different sources than the people who are studying post-1920. So the book, I'm trying to bring these two fields together in order to get them to speak to one another, because I believe that each field can answer the other field's questions. I, I agree. And I have to say, just having read your book and, and looking at the incredible amount of work going into it, I'm not unsympathetic as to why uh, there aren't more uh, works that, that kind of bridge uh, both the Mashar and the Masharak and bridge pre-World War One and post-World War I. Uh, but I'm glad that we've got uh, this exciting study that, that does that. Um, so moving into to each of the, the chapters of your book a little bit, you start with a really uh, interesting, and I, I think very helpful, just pedagogically speaking, overview of, uh, of Syrian migration, you say, in, in a global context, um, starting primarily in the late 19th century. Of course, there were lots of people from the Ottoman Empire migrating all over the world. Um, but as many uh, historians of global migration and, and even Many Americans, many descendants of immigrants know uh, that Syro-Lebanese were not the only uh, communities moving at this time period. So I was wondering if, if you could just, uh, without going into too many uh, specific individuals, could you sort of introduce this, this cast of characters to our listeners? Who are these Syro-Lebanese migrants in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and how might they be compared or contrasted to other uh, immigrant communities at this time? To, to sort of, at the most global level, this is a moment in the late 19th century where um, societies all around the Mediterranean are proletarianizing. And with that proletarianization, with the development of a, um, a sort of workforce that is both that is both mobile and dependent on cash wages that's how you end up with these uh, Mediterranean migrants not just Ottoman Mediterranean migrants but also Greeks and Italians and um, other you know Mediterranean European peoples who uh, move en masse um, across the Atlantic to the post-abolition economies of the Atlantic world in, in both North and South America um, among Ottoman emigrants the community that, that I'm really focusing on um, are Ottoman nationals who are Arabic speakers. Um, some majority of them, although it's contested how much of a majority, uh, were Christians, uh, specifically Christians from Mount Lebanon. Um, and so a lot of the sources that I use document that community, which is, which is the most well-documented community amongst, um, amongst this diaspora. Um, there were workers, uh, as many as somewhere between a third and a half of these in, of these people were young men and women who did some sort of work in uh, either heavy industry or even more commonly in the textile industry. Uh, the famous image of the Lebanese and Syrian emigrant was the pack peddler, who was this sort of itinerant commercial agent who would sell sewing notions or needles or um, cloth or hats or gloves um, uh, out of his out of his or her suitcase in rural communities across the Americas. Um, and then we also had, you know, entrepreneurial agents. You had, you know, you had uh, industrial moguls, you know, uh, very wealthy families from um, mostly Mount Lebanon who were investing and in, in constructing factories uh, in the Atlantic world um, and then hiring and, and employing Middle Eastern migrants, almost contracting Middle Eastern migrants to then go move and then work factories. So we see a broad spectrum of class backgrounds. Uh, if there's one thing they share, it's a not so distant uh, family history of being a peasant uh, in the late Ottoman Empire. But by the time they get into the Mahjar, they we do see a variety of um, class backgrounds, a, a variety of confessional backgrounds, and a variety of um, 
I guess you could say kinship-based or village-based uh, networks that are all sort of like mixed together in these colonies, in these immigrant colonies in new and interesting ways. So once once they've established themselves uh, and, and you set that context, then you you bring us into a watershed moment in Middle East history back at the homeland, uh, which is the the Young Turk Revolution uh, of, of 1908, in which uh, a group known as the Committee of, of Union and Progress uh, essentially comes to power. They bring back uh, the Ottoman constitution that had been abrogated for three decades under uh, Sultan Abdul Hamid. And it's, it's this moment of, of initially great excitement, as you document in, in the Mahjar. They're excited that um, there, there could be press freedoms and they're talking about uh, you know, liberty and, and progress and all of these things. Um, but what, what emerges at this time period, and it's something that I, I want to explore a little bit because it's been touched on a bit by other uh, scholars, although albeit in different ways, is, is this tension between repatriation, right, wanting to go back to this, uh, this newly uh, constituted Ottoman Empire, uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, seeking to become citizens of your host states. Um, so why were these two things in tension and, and how did those tensions play out uh, before World War I? Um, well, uh, I think um, one thing that, it, that, that I want to, that, that I describe in this book is how after the CUP came to power in 1908, there was this um, deliberate, you know, program, almost like a PR campaign, like the Committee, for, Committee of Union and Progress set out and established um, a series of policies in order to reach out and embrace the diaspora, which I think is really interesting because we, we tend to forget about the relationship that sending states have with um, emigrant populations, even those that are domiciled more or less permanently abroad. But in 1908, the Ottoman Empire, the new government, um, seeks to reclaim and uh, reconnect with these immigrants for the purposes of, you know, uh, creating remittance economies, which they, which the CUP believed would bolster economic growth, but also for the purposes of something like a soft diplomacy, especially with the United States of America, but with, you know, with this part of the world more generally. Um, and so it's in that context that, that the Syrian committees uh, form, um, a couple of them actually attached to these brand new uh, Ottoman empire consulates which are built in the couple in the months following the revolution um, and it's in the context of those those syrian committees that are more or less sponsored by istanbul that um we see this sort of like excitement within the syrian community within the syrian diaspora about the revolution about liberty about the restoration of expression free expression powers and the right to um, have associations and it's uh, in that excitement that this idea of repatriation as a political good or as a regenerative force in Ottoman politics um, comes into play. A lot of these Syrian committees are also connected to the Syrian American press. And so in the newspapers in this diaspora, from New York to you know Brazil, uh, there's this idea that the goal of the diaspora is to recognize its obligations towards its homeland and that this could be uh, through remittance of funds. It could be through diplomacy, but the ultimate good was, is, is the repatriation of a sort of politically enlightened uh, and well-educated diasporic Syrian public that would then go back home to be the face of the young Turk revolution in their former homeland. Um, and so, you know, repatriation, it functions, it functions as a political project. The Ottoman state is actually attempting to repatriate Syrian and, and Armenian uh, emigrants during this period with, I should remark, with limited success. Um, but repatriation functions um, almost more significantly as, as a story that emigrants like to tell each other and tell themselves in this moment, in this sort of moment of enthusiasm. For, for the homeland. Um, the reality is that as the Ottoman Empire sort of very quickly uh, following after 1909, uh, some of those promises made during the revolution, the freedom, freedoms of association, of political organization, freedoms of expression, 
uh, all of those things, the CUP sort of progressively walks back. They reinstitute press censorship. They uh, ban certain ethnic associations, etc. And there's an alienation that comes with that in the Syrian diaspora. It's during that period of alienation, 1909, 1910 through 1913, that we see the uh, petitions for naturalization in the host country sort of spike. This is when the politics of naturalization becomes a thing, for instance, in the United States. It's in the context of a sort of sense of a little bit of an alienation um, or a sense of betrayal from, you know, from the ideals of the Young Turk Revolution. So um, then in, you know, when, once we have the, the tension, then the next sort of historical moment uh, that, that you talk about is the war. Um, during the war, you talk about uh, recruitment efforts in the Mahjar of a, a variety of Syro-Lebanese activists who were trying to sign up their fellow migrants to fight on behalf of the Entente. Um, you, and you document really interesting stories of people fighting for Canada, fighting for the United States. Um, but I'm, I'm curious, why, uh, what, what motivation would they have to, to serve in the Entente? Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because many of these same Syrian committees that uh, that that had once been connected to Ottoman officialdom um, through the consulates were these same societies that by 1916 and 1917 were actively recruiting um, emigrant men um, in what they believed to be a liberatory war against the Ottoman state. Um, and so, you know... Military recruitment in collaboration with the Entente is an issue that um, brings up potentially, um, it brings up some of the, this, this idea, this stereotype that the diaspora and its activists, and particularly those who sided with the Entente against the Ottomans, that they were um, siding with the forces of colonialism by fighting for the Entente. And so what I'm attempting to do in this, um, in this chapter is to show that the politics um, associated with military recruitment weren't necessarily um, about collaboration with European or American powers against um, against the Ottoman state, or at least they weren't only about that. That it was um, there was this sense, an ongoing sense that began in 1908, a sense that the diaspora owed uh, the homeland or the Syrians and Lebanese in the homeland. Um, something of a political debt, that there was a fealty, a loyalty to be paid uh, to the homeland, and that um, military service was one, uh, one way to express um, this loyalty. And so a lot of these um, men who ended up signing up for Entente service um, did it for the cause of liberation uh, without actually, you know, delving too deeply into what liberation meant, what it would look like, without, for instance, working out the, um, the details of the nationalisms that, that the political parties in this diaspora were articulating yet. And then there were men who signed up um, because it gave them a fast track. Uh, in the U.S., for instance, signing up after 1918 gave Syrian men a fast track to U.S. citizenship, and with that U.S. citizenship, a chance at a better wage after was over the thing that i like as you um as you talk in the book about these recruitment efforts is is how much agency you really give to the masha right you make it clear that although uh you know especially the french government and you know the united states government to to a lesser extent were were fine with these recruitment efforts that they they were not led by the, the French government or, or the State Department, that they were really led by, by these migrant associations uh, that you talk about. Um, one of the other things that really struck me that you highlight is the, the risky position, the very difficult position that some of these military recruits were put in um, just because of the, the geopolitics of, of the war. Could you talk a, a little bit about that, about the human aspect of, of the experience of these soldiers? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, and absolutely. Like, that's what I wanted to capture was, was this idea that um, these weren't 
uh, this wasn't a Franco-American um, project, this recruitment campaign. Uh, the Syrian political parties, and in some ways it's really interesting because these Syrian political parties were given stacks of blank French passports, right? And they they could use these passports to basically give um, access uh, to travel rights that you know, to, to select Syrians for the purposes of recruitment. And those passports after the war became something of like a de facto nationality status. And so it's really interesting that there's a non-state, um, not, there are non-state agents, there are non-state, you know, basically political parties, um, who are sort of mediating, um, you know, the rights of travel and even the nationality rights of, of Syrian and Lebanese immigrants, um, during this time. Um, and so regards the difficult position, uh, Syrians and Lebanese who fought for the Entente, they could get this pass- these, these special passport documents um, that, were, that were meant to assist the recruitment effort. The reason that they needed to have those special passport documents is because it was against the, the you know, international rules of war to um, enlist and then deploy, uh, you know, recruits against their home state, right? So if these Ottoman soldiers were then deployed against the Ottoman Empire without without some sort of um, change in nationality status, then that could put them um, in sort of a legal jeopardy where they could be, you know, tried for treason. Um, and so the passport documents were, were sort of the creation of this like legal fig leaf that allowed this recruitment to happen and allowed these people to become temporarily French protected or temporarily U.S. protected individuals for the purposes of the war. Um, that said, you know, they didn't, these individuals, the ones who ended up, uh, most of them in Northern France had yet to work out the stuff of what those national categories meant. And so, you know, there are a couple of, um, discussions that I, a couple of interactions between individual migrants that I go into in the book where, uh, you see that, um, you know, migrant troops don't necessarily work out or necessarily even care about um, the high politics of where Syria's borders begin and end or where Lebanon's borders begin and end um, in 1918, right? So so the idea is that the politics of nationalism um, as a programmatic set of geographic or territorial directives is a creature not of the First World War, but of the 1919 moment of the Paris Peace Conference. So then, to to stay on that topic, then I, I guess of the uh, the soft conduit documents, the the sort of fig leaf, as as you put it, from the French, um, that that creates um, a, another issue that you bring up because ultimately these were documents that were produced by the French consulates, generally, right? So it gives the the French mandate. A, a means of of controlling the the mandate communities right from from abroad right controlling the the mashar um how how did they execute or exercise that power how did the french exercise the power yeah so or what were the implications right of the french being the gatekeepers of these these soft conduit documents yeah um so point number 1 is that these these safe conduct passports they were issued as early as 19 i mean they were issued even before the first world war but they became a document of something like a national a, a quasi nationality um in the diaspora during the first world war in 1916 1917 um, and then the French continued to allow the Syrian committees, the Syrian political parties in this diaspora to continue to stamp these documents for repatriation purposes in 1918 through 1920. So it's interesting because the French are managing this passport program um, before they're given the mandate, right? And I argue that the French are active are actively seeking to give out these passports um, as one means of making real its um, its claim to the mandate. The French, they're doing this in a number of ways. They are trying to stamp the mandate into existence through the proffering, the giving of passports to Syrian immigrants, through petitioning practices, through propaganda. 
Um, we see a number of ways in which the French um, foreign ministry papered the mandate in the months between the armistice of 1918 and the declaration of the mandate. Um, and the passports become a meaningful way of doing this. It's a way of taking this um, this Syrian nationality category as it existed in the diaspora, which was a racial category, not, not a geographic category in the space of this diaspora, and then trying to iterate that into a claim on a geographic territory um, in the context of, you know, de- basically creating the mandate and, 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 and um, asserting where its borders began and ended. Well, so, and, and you have a, a really excellent uh, anecdote in, in the book that talks about the fluidity of the borders at the time uh, where there are individuals uh, who supposedly have uh, conduit documents, right, but they are, are forgeries or alleged forgeries. Um, and they're, they're Turkish-speaking Kurds who are emigrating to what is now modern-day Turkey, right, Diyarbakir, but they're considering themselves Syrians, right? So, so what did it mean to be Syrian, specifically, um, at, at the end of World War I, legally speaking, in the United States? Right. Um, so the United States actually, during the war, before the armistice, there was a, um, a travel ban. Uh, that the United States had imposed on all enemy nationals living in U.S. territories. And technically that meant um, European foreign nationals like Germans and Austrians, right? Belligerent countries that the U.S. was at war with. The United States was never formally at war with the Ottoman Empire. However, they included Ottoman nationals uh, under the group of of foreign nationals living in the U.S. that were subject to the travel ban. So there was this travel ban in place designed specifically to stop repatriation of Ottoman nationals living in the United States during the war. Um, When the war was over, they continued this ban. But there was one specific series of exemptions that were created, mostly through the lobbying of the Syrian committees who were doing this military recruitment. Um, And that, that exemption held that if someone could be demonstrated to be Syrian, which in U.S. law at that time meant um, Arabic-speaking from greater Syria, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, um, and usually um, uh, implied Christian, not Muslim, if someone could be demonstrated to be uh, Syrian under these terms, they could be exempted from the broader Ottoman travel ban. And so that's why um, we continue to see the safe conduct passports given to Syrians um, in the context of a broader ban on Ottoman travel. Um, After the war is over, there are a number of emigrants who are Syrian or who are other Ottoman nationals who are all attempting to go back home. And the way that they do it, the, the mechanism for doing these kind of repatriations before the establishment of the French mandate is to get one of these French safe conduct passports, which means that one must be registered as legally Syrian. Um, So there were a number of Syrians who accomplished this, but yeah, as you mentioned, there were a number of other groups, um, in this case, Kurdish speakers from uh, present day uh, Turkey, who had basically, who had achieved these uh, safe conduct passports by claiming that they were Syrian, only to then be discovered as not actually Syrian. The wrinkle in it all, though, is that in that particular case, um, it was revealed who the smuggler was, and it was revealed that there was someone who was fraudulently um, giving these Kurds uh, passports that were that were claiming that they were Syrian. But the wrinkle was that that smuggler could not actually be indicted uh, because it turned out the U.S. government hadn't actually articulated what differentiated Syrian nationality or Syrian territory as legally distinct from Turkish nationality or Turkish territory yet, right? And so there was this sense in that case that a fraud had been uh, perpetrated, but um, the U.S. government could not could not indict or convict this smuggler. So what was the the justification given at the time for this uh, this first Muslim ban, if you could call it that? Um, well, the, the justification at the time, you know, it, it is, it's actually pretty similar to the justification for the contemporary iteration. Uh, it was under the guise of public safety, 
which was a 1918 sort of equivalent for what we might today call national security. Interestingly, in 1918, it was the Travel Control Act of 1918 that did this. Um, What's interesting about it is that the Ottoman nationals were the only group subjected to this travel ban who represented a group of formal neutrals, neutral, neutral uh, allies of the enemy in this context in the war. So America was not at war with the Ottoman Empire, but subjected them to the ban anyway. Uh, the reason for that was uh, because the Ottoman Empire was allied, allied with Berlin. Um, but there was also this sort of latent Islamophobia uh, that you see both in the legislative context and the discussion around the Travel Control Act of 1918, and also in the practices of um, of the police who are uh, surveilling um, Ottoman migrants, particularly Ottoman migrants who, say, are crossing the U.S.-Mexico border. There's a lot of attention paid to Middle Eastern migrants who might be crossing the southern border in this moment. Um, and the Travel Control Act is one means of sort of stopping or, you know, stemming that particular flow. So um, I, one of the things that I, I continued to to think about as I was reading this book, particularly in in the current political moment, um, is how many echoes of the past we see in in today's discourse, whether it's discourse as as you've talked about about public safety or national security, issues of smuggling. Uh, we've talked uh, a little bit earlier about issues of of repatriation. Certainly there's a conversation now coming out of uh, Bashar al-Assad's regime about trying to repatriate refugees and, and that sort of thing, uh, often forcibly. Uh, and and I, I just found that remarkable. I wanted to throw that out as, as a general comment. And perhaps uh, at the end of the interview, you know, I, I'll ask you to sort of reflect on that. Um, but I, I do want to... Um, bring bring back the um uh, some of the the networks themselves and and the the characters in in your book here um uh, because you paint this this really interesting uh picture of a, of a very uh heterogeneous community um after world war 1 of course there are debates about the future of syria debates held in in paris of course um in Versailles, but also debates held in New York and Buenos Aires and Sao Paulo and, and other uh, places in which these migrants were. So um, could you, I, I don't expect you to untangle the entire skein of networks that you do so well in the book, but could you give our listeners a sense of, of what these debates were about? What were some of the different visions offered about uh, future Syria, greater Syria? Uh, so, um... The first thing that happens is, is is immediately after that armistice of 1918 is drafted and, and signed, many of those political, the political networks that I describe um, as doing the military recruitment work or um, sustaining the Arab American press during the war, um, almost immediately reconstitute themselves as uh, political parties um, who are promoting either an Arab nationalist um, agenda, the idea of a free and independent, um, you know, greater greater Arab state, right, with or without the Hashemite Amir Faisal. Um, then there are the greater Syrianists, the, the, the guys who are connected with uh, Shekri Ghanem in uh, Paris, who are promoting something like a greater Syrian um, idea, with or without Palestine. Uh, and then there are the Libanists um, who are promoting Lebanese independence, a, a Lebanon that is independent not only of the Ottoman Empire, but also of its Syrian hinterland with or without a French or British mandate. Um, in all of the, in all three shades, because there's sort of three tendencies there, the Arabists, the Syrianists, and the Libanists. This is a sort of schema that I'm borrowing from Carol Hakim. Um, within all of those shades, there's also a discussion about whether or not um, a United States mandate might be the way to forestall or preempt um, partition in this part of the world, or... Um, colonialism by one of the European powers. So although the Wilsonian moment is sort of one of these moments where the, all the focus is on Paris and what's happening, you know, between the great powers in Paris and how the map is being redrawn of the Middle East, um, you know, in the, in the diaspora, it's a lot messier than that. And there's a lot of um, 
there's a lot of political parties who fall into one or another tendency who then switch sides, right? Or who then uh, are contending with one another in the space of diaspora. Um, one of the points that I try to make in, in the book is that um, thinking about the way that we have to rethink the way that this diaspora and its activists are remembered by the historiography of the Paris Peace Conference, because up to now, the focus has been what's gone down within the halls of the Paris Peace Conference and the political parties that were either successful or not or not successful in that space in, in asserting their agenda in the Middle East. Um, and so what I've tried to do in parts of the book is show all of the many activists and political parties who attempted to gain entrance into the Paris Peace Conference only to be turned away. And I tried to follow what these activists did in the diaspora in an attempt to protest the way that their, um, the way that their diaspora was being represented in Paris. Because the historical stereotype is that the diaspora supported the French mandate. And the, the reality is that it's actually a lot more complex than that. And, and that, uh, Diasporic activists who supported the French mandate, if anything, represented a, a something of a, a minority in, in in the actual diaspora. I I will say uh, for those interested in in diaspora communities, the I mean the work that you do, just the sort of service uh, to the field work um, in in untangling these networks is is really incredible, and it it speaks to. Um, to the incredible diversity in the Mahjar, particularly um, of this moment, I I was kind of thinking though when as I was reading reading this that oftentimes when we tell this story this post war moment in Syria and Lebanon or Greater Syria um, in the Middle East in the region uh, we tell it through the lens of the King Crane Commission right and the King Crane Commission found that. Um, I forget the exact numbers, right? But a, but a strong majority of people in in the Levant at the time wanted, uh, generally were opposed to partition, wanted full blown independence, right? Or at the very at the very most, they would accept uh, an American mandate, right? But that they really didn't want a French or a British mandate. Um, and at, at least again in the historiography and the way that we sort of present this in uh, in history courses is that it, it's not entirely homogenous, but that but that's a really strong contingent. Um, but your picture of the the mushar it makes it sound uh, sound a lot different. Uh, do you think that that's the case, or might we also be sort of missing something in the Middle East as well? I think, um, you know, and it's funny because, you know, by contrast, you know, the, the, the description of, of, of the, the history within the region, um, it, it's before, you know, before I came across a historiography of this diaspora that sort of strikes a really powerful contrast to that image of a rather um, uh, loud and clear message in favor of immediate non-federed independence coming from the King Crane Commission or from the region. Um, this, the idea is that um, in the Paris Peace Conference, um, there, is a, there is the representation of a Syrian and Lebanese diaspora that is just as um, unified in its desire for a mandate right? Um, and so the, it's, it, it, there's this idea that, that the activists, this pervasive image in, in this diaspora that these activists desired a mandate in general or a French mandate in particular for, for Syria and Lebanon. And so, so my book is attempting to complicate that picture by revealing that there were activists who were, um, you know, promoting in pro-independence politics who vehemently opposed um, colonialism and especially French colonialism in the Middle East, who vehemently opposed partition politics in the Middle East, but that those voices were so, you know, systematically filtered out of the Paris Peace Conference uh, in favor of certain activists who, um, whose ideas and interests confirmed the logic of the French foreign ministry, right? And so um, 
I, I found that really interesting. And I, I appreciated, um, I've come across a handful of these groups in, in my own work. I, I You mentioned that if they were kept out of Paris, sometimes they would just have their own meetings, right? Or, or they would, uh, you know, petition the Americans um, just through their embassies and things like that. So again, I, I really, really very much like the uh, the the focus on migrants as as agents uh, driving their own uh, their own politics and their own response to these geopolitical events that are going on. Um, perhaps uh, so. We're I want to wrap things up a little bit. I um, I think it might be fitting then to end. We've talked so much about uh, how these geopolitical events happening in the Middle East affected. Uh, diaspora communities in in myriad ways um, and force them to sort of respond to these events in, in interesting ways. Um, but your last chapter uh, sort of flips this on its head, right? And you talk about the census of Lebanon, not the famous 1932 census, but but the, the earlier one of, of 1921. And you argue uh, that now, uh, through French actions, of course, um, the the diaspora sort of shapes Lebanese politics in in a really dramatic uh, and and lasting way. Could you give us a little bit of sense of of how that happened, what that was? Yeah, um, and so so the French um, they established their diaspora, they established their mandate um, uh, in 1920, and they create Greater Lebanon in. September of 1920, and the following spring, they announce um, Lebanon's, you know, Greater Lebanon's first census project. And it's um, supposed to just be an administrative count to get a sense of what the electoral districts looked like, to get a sense of the confessional demography of the new territory of Greater Lebanon. And you get a sense, uh, reading the French sources, that um, they um, perhaps came into Greater Lebanon with the idea that the territory that they had delineated within its new expanded borders was uh, perhaps majority Christian territory, uh, which would have went well with the the sort of Republican structures that the French eventually planned for for Greater Lebanon. Um, And so um, it's in the early stages of this 1921 census that the French mandatory authorities have to deal with an overwhelmingly an overwhelmingly Christian diaspora living in the Americas who's not present in Lebanese territory, but whose numbers are needed in order to maintain a Christian demographic majority for the new state as, as it exists within its new borders. And so in 1921, um, 130,000 Lebanese emigrants were included in the census, and the demographic weight of this community was included in Lebanon's, in the very first of Lebanon's um, electoral districts, um, uh, in the confessional balancing, you know, the confessional balances and quotas that were, that were used um, in uh, the first legislative assembly or the representative council in um, in Lebanon. And that uh, quota, they're, they're not quota, there was a, um, a ratio that was created in 1921 that held that there were six Christian seats for every five Muslim ones. And that was confirmed later by the 1932 census, again, by counting Lebanese emigrants. And this is interesting because in this, this same moment in 1921, uh, and through the 1920s, the French um, mandate is actually seeking to scale back the rights and the rights of Lebanese emigrants regards their homeland and the responsibilities of Lebanese emigrants regards their homeland, right? So there's this weird tension where the French mandate simultaneously needs the diaspora for mostly its demographic uh, measures in order to affect the mandate as it had planned for the territory of greater Lebanon. But this is at the very same moment that they're attempting to um, limit which Lebanese emigrants can, you know, legally repatriate to the homeland or which Lebanese emigrants have the right to Lebanese nationality or which Lebanese emigrants have the right to vote in Lebanese elections. So there's this tension between needing the diaspora and needing to domesticate the diaspora in some way and hoping to sort of um, cut the ties that exist between Lebanon and its diaspora. 
Well, so uh, as our listeners can probably tell by now, this is an incredibly rich book. Uh, I can talk about it for for hours, um, but I I do want to do want to let you go and and don't want to have a, a podcast too long for for a, a good commute with our listeners. Um, but I, I do want to end the way that we often end on these podcasts by asking you. Uh, what's next? What sorts of things uh, are are you looking at uh, in terms of future projects? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I'm I'm actually just starting a new project now um, that will essentially be a history of the uh, global Syrian working class. And so as I was finishing this book, one of the things finishing the World War One book, one of the things that um, I realized I was doing is that while I was focusing in on this period in the history of this diaspora that's sort of under-remarked because of the conflict, um, that in a lot of ways I was using the sources and privileging the voices of um, a particular middle class, you know, the, the men who were writing for the Arab American press or who, or who were recruiting uh, soldiers or who were um, acting as agents for the French foreign ministry by stamping passports. These were all men of a particular of a particular professional, you know, upper middle class, right, um, living in the cities of the diaspora. And so the next project will be an attempt to look at this diaspora um, from the perspective of its proletarian majority, the men and women who are working in the textile industry or in heavy industries, from whom, from whose perspective uh, they're not thinking about the nationalist politics towards the homeland, but they're thinking about um, the politics of the factory, the politics of the mill, right? And the politics of the street. Um, and so I'm just starting right now, but the idea is to try to, is to try to explore what it means to be working class in this diaspora and in what spaces are working class identities and subjectivi- subjectivities generated. That sounds like a really exciting project, and I, I can't wait to see uh, where, where you go with that. Um, thank you again so much, Professor Fahrenholt, for taking time to, to be with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been nice to talk to you. Thank you.